First Corinthians one ten through twelve. Seven seven eighty. All right, we're going to start with verses 10 through 12. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Our world is full of boundary-oriented relationships. Relationships that are defined by boundaries. And in these kind of relationships... The emphasis is on who's in versus who's out. It's on us versus them. And it's about what makes us different rather than what makes us similar. These lines are the boundary lines. Our world is full of these kind of boundary-oriented relationships. Unless you have been living in a cave for the last couple of months, there's no way that you haven't heard about the whole Duck Dynasty debacle, for instance. And for those of you, for the one person that was living in a cave, the brief synopsis, uh, Duck Dynasty is a reality TV show on a and I'm going to... On a- uh, it's a reality TV show on A and E, uh, and Duck Dynasty is a family in Louisiana. They make duck calls for duck hunters, and um, a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, Phil, who's kind of the the patriarch of this this uh, loving Christian extended family made what were some pretty coarse and explicit comments about being gay and um, how he didn't understand it. And A&E immediately responded by at least announcing that they were going to discontinue the show. And that just started this firestorm of interaction in the media, in social media. You see the divides between um, between gays and Christians posed against each other. You see boundary lines drawn there. It brings out boundary lines uh, begin, uh, between the, the ever-present divide that is partisan politics, the left and the right, the conservatives and the liberals. We had a couple friend, um, and the wife was telling us this story about how she came home one day and saw that her husband had gone shopping. And her husband never goes shopping like for clothes for himself. She always does the shopping for him. She was like, honey, what is this bag from, you know, whatever store he had bought something from? And um, he pulls out two T-shirts that he had bought. They're both Duck Dynasty T-shirts. She was like, why did you buy Duck Dynasty 
t-shirt. He's like, well, I just, you know, he tends to be more right-leaning. He's like, I just felt like I needed to make a statement. You know, I, I just want everybody to know where I stand about this. And so I bought a Duck Dynasty t-shirt. She's like, have you ever watched the show Duck Dynasty? He's like, well, no, but I mean, I, I'm sure it's a good show. And, and what was happening there is, you know, this Duck Dynasty and even this t-shirt had become a, a symbol of the boundary line. And it became a way for him to express, right or wrong, uh, which side of the boundary he wanted to, to stand on. And he wanted to make a statement. He wanted everybody to know that. Um, and now we're, we're blessed with Facebook and seeing the horror of all of these debates kind of play out there right in front of all of us. Um, and the irony is that this place for friends becomes a battleground for foes where we play out debates about all different kinds of things. What kind of food you can eat, how you prefer to give birth to your babies, what, what approach you take to medicines and vaccinations, you know, you name it. You, you're laughing because you see it. You see it. You see the boundary lines drawn and let's get it. You know, let's go at it. Right. You know, the church is not immune to these kind of boundary oriented relationships. There are theological camps in North American Christianity. You've got uh, the neo-reformed, the emergent, the fundamentalist, the progressive evangelical, the post-evangelical, the evangelical, the neo-Mennonite, the liberal Protestant. And all of those are terrible at camps, except for the one that I'm a part of. (laughs) And I didn't mention it because there's only one member of it. But uh, I'm tongue in cheek there. Um, we're, we're divided theologically. We have we have boundary markers between what theological distinctives you kind of adhere to. We're divided. There are boundary oriented relationships about ministry methodology. You know how how do you do church? You've got the mega churches, the multi site churches, the simple slash house church slash slash organic churches. You've got missional churches. You've got missional community churches. You've got intentional communities. You've got neo monastic communities. And if you look, you can find a book in each of those streams that will say we're doing it right and other people doing other approaches are doing it wrong. And I have to admit Though sheepishly that I have been caught up in those kind of boundary markers Um, as a church planner in the early days of Storyline, especially I was quite dogmatic that simple house church organic was the way to go. It's the, the only way to do it. And some of you have seen the rhetorical grenades that I have tossed over the fence line at the mega or the multi-side or the institutional or the whatnot. I, I've been wrapped up in all of that myself. Thank you for receiving my confession, by the way. Uh, we see boundary-oriented relationships in Corinth as well. We see Paul saying, one of you says, I follow Paul. One of you says, I follow Apollos. Another, another Cephas or Peter. Another, I follow Christ. And there, there are really two specific boundary-oriented relationships in Greco-Roman culture that created this dynamic. The first was the teacher-student relationship. Um, in, in Corinth, where you know, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth, 
In Corinth, there were different parties of philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics and Sophists. Um, Many of them would come to town and contrary to today, where getting a philosophy degree basically translates into being unemployed. Being a philosopher in Paul's day was a very lucrative gig because young men, they wealthy young men would pay an older philosopher lots of money. To help them discover the secrets of life and wisdom. And so these philosophers had these great followings of young men who wanted to follow in their stead and find out everything that uh, that life had for them. In fact, so much so there's a statue that was built in Corinth. And I I think it's still there today in honor of a sophist philosopher named Favorinus, which shows the extent To which these orators, teachers, philosophers were really revered and admired. It wasn't uncommon at all for the disciples of philosophers. And that's what they call them, disciples, students of these teachers. It wasn't uncommon for them to make exclusive claims of loyalty to their particular teacher. Over and against the other philosopher guys that were out there in the day. The second boundary oriented relationship is um, that between a patron and a client. This is this is probably more foreign to us than teacher and student, because lots of us have been in the educational system. But patronage, according to one historian, was the grease that kept the wheels of the Roman economy, society and politics turning. So a patron, a patron is a wealthy person who um, uses their their power and their wealth to offer protection or to offer some assistance or aid to either a city or a group of people or an individual. And so a, a patron could help an individual of lower status by giving them money, by giving them gifts or dinner invitations, help with lawsuits, business affairs, other advice, and these relationships between patron and client could be maintained through several generations in a family. So what was it that kept the patron in these kind of relationships doing good? It was it was certainly more than just a feeling of goodwill. Um, the main reason a patron would patron a client, would take a client in and help them, is because it was a way that they could publicly display their power and their wealth. There's this daily tradition in Corinth called the um, salutatia, like salutation, which uh, was the morning greeting. And so every morning, clients would go to the house of their patron and they would gather outside in the, the courtyard and they would be dressed in their togas. And their toga was specially marked so that you would know if they were a servant or an equestrian or a senator. You would know based on their clothing whether they were a client or a patron, basically. So patrons would have all these clients outside of their homes, and one by one they would call them in to receive a morning greeting from them. And they would thank them. Uh, the, the patron would be thanked by his client. And if the patron had like an errand to run or needed to go to law court that day or to the forum, they could require their clients basically to follow them around and be their entourage. So that when they went to law court or when they went to forum, everybody would see that they were a big deal. 
because they had this whole train of specially marked clients following them around. The more clients you had, the bigger deal you were, the more powerful and the more wealthy. And so inevitably, because this was such a public display of status, if you were the client of a patron, loyalty was a big deal. And you would never want to give props to someone who wasn't your patron because it might jeopardize your relationship with your own patron yourself. Does that make sense? So that part of what's happening is these teacher and student paradigms and the, the, the patron and client paradigm, they're spilling into the church in Corinth. Paul and Apollos and Peter, they began to be viewed as these philosophers or or patrons who brought spiritual benefits to the people they brought to Christ. And so the natural response of the people who were blessed by them was to give them undivided, exclusive loyalty and to badmouth the other guys that weren't their their patrons or their philosophers. Well, I'm I'm Apollos. Paul, he's trying. He's nothing. I owe everything to Apollos. And so they, they would quarrel among themselves. And this is what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 1. Let's look at verses 13 through 18. Paul continues and says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one could say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul is essentially saying in this section that that boundary oriented relationships are unacceptable in the church. They're unacceptable in the kingdom of God. Paul is saying, don't let these boundary lines divide you. Don't let them come between you. Instead, focus not on the boundaries, but on the center. Cultivate relationships that are defined by the center instead of by the boundaries. So Paul is encouraging them to... To shift their view. So instead of this bounded set, this boundary focused relationship, he's encouraging them to focus on the center. And the center for Paul is the cross of Christ. In this kind of way of looking at relationships, it's less about who's in and who's out. And it's less about us versus them because it's really, it really becomes all us. And it's, it's not about what's going out here. It's some preconceived boundary. Uh, what's more important in this way of looking at our relationships is where we are in relation to Jesus, in relation to the cross. And that's both in our orientation to Jesus are we pointing toward Jesus? Are we pointing away? And uh, it's also our distance to Jesus. How close are we to Jesus? 
And I think it, it goes to stand that somebody who's out here, you know, outside of some sort of perceived boundary, who is pointing toward Jesus and aiming toward Jesus, is probably in better shape than someone who is an, a religious insider and yet has their back turned to Jesus. Paul, Paul is saying, instead of orienting your relationships around the boundaries, orient your relationship around the center, around the cross of Christ. Um, the focus here is not on what makes us different. It's on what brings us together. It's what, what we share in common. Paul, in the message, um, I, li- I like the way he translates this. Peterson translates verse 17. Paul says, God didn't send me out to collect a following for myself, but to preach the message of what he's done, collecting a following for him. And he didn't send me out with a lot of fancy rhetoric of my own, lest the powerful action at the center, Christ on the cross, be trivialized into mere words. So Christ is the one that we follow. Christ is the one who brings us together. Christ is the chief patron. Christ is the chief teacher. Christ is greater than a political party. He's greater than a theological camp. He's greater than a ministry methodology. So if we're going to orient ourselves around anything, it must be Christ and the cross and not other things that we might put at the center. What would it look like? You can talk. What would it look like for a community to center its relationships on the cross of Christ? <laughs> That's a very concrete example, yes. Okay, what else? Yeah, resisting labeling. I think for me, when something hits Facebook, I would be wise just to not get involved in the drama of it and just kind of sit back and watch everybody else do it, but not put my two cents in. Yeah. Yeah, Facebook is a challenging forum to weigh some of that. I don't think uh, this means that there are not differences. I mean, it's naive to say we don't have different opinions from people um, with people, but that's not what defines our relationships. It it doesn't define our relationship with non-Christians or with each other. Uh, At least that's not what we want to define our relationships. The proposal that, that Paul is making is that we let Christ be the center. And when we're tempted to to pick sides, we remember and remind each other that we're on the same team, right? We're we're in this together. We serve the same Lord. We we acknowledge Jesus at the center. I feel like somebody else was going to say something. I was going to say we'd be less concerned with comfortable. Maybe we divide along boundaries because it's comfortable. Mm-hmm. Not because we're not just like, there's a boundary, and I don't want to divide there, but that we're entirely each other's Yeah. Yeah, the the tribe that I come out of. Uh, the Stone Campbell tribe, out of which Churches of Christ and Christian churches 
and disciples of Christ kind of emerged. Um, they were in the in the early 19th century, beginning of the 1800s, were a unity movement, and they reclaimed this slogan. One of their slogans was "We're Christians only, but not the only Christians." And one of the slogans I really love that they they reclaimed, and I think they got it from a few hundred years before, um, and it's been attributed to all different kinds of people. But um, they they hung their hat on this threefold phrase: in essentials, unity; in non-essentials, liberty; in all things, charity. So the things that really matter. Let's be unified. Paul here is saying the thing that really matters is the cross of Christ and the core of the gospel that goes with that. Um, Everything else is non-essential. We can disagree. We can have liberty in things that are non-essential. And in all things, we can have charity or love. And that's really what the cross is all about. To make the center of who we are, the cross, is to be a community that is shaped by self-giving, self-sacrificing love. And when that kind of love is a part of our, a deep part of our identity, those boundaries, they don't go away, they don't cease to exist, but they really fade into the background. When, when the love of the cross, the love of Jesus that's found in the cross, is at our center as a community. And I just want to affirm storyline. One, one thing I'm really grateful for, um, they tell you when you go to church planner school, Whichever church planner school you go to, they say you should expect that in the first few years of starting a church, there's going to be a major power struggle in your congregation. New churches are like lightning rods for people who have an agenda because they're they're babies, they're fragile, leadership is taking shape, and people with agendas just suck to it like mosquitoes on those lights, you know. Because they think I can play out my agenda for, and this church can look like the church that I want it to look like. And so it's very common. I've had some friends who get a couple years into church planning and it just implodes because of internal division and, um, and rivalry about competing visions of what this thing should look like. And I, I am so grateful to God that Storyline's been protected from that for whatever reason. We've had the grace not to have major blow-ups. We get along. I'd say that the in our community is really our great strength um, as the people of God. But I think one thing that makes this work timely for us right now is that we have we're in a season of transition, and we have some things on the horizon. Things are going to change and evolve for Storyline. And the thing that we need to hang our hat on as as we continue to grow as a church is not um, not making the right decisions because we'll make some wrong decisions. I'm sure it's not going to be what we look like or the particular shapes or forms we look like. It's not going to be the people that become a part of storyline. What we really need to hang our hat on as a community and orient ourselves around is the cross of Christ. We need to find unity in the love of Christ found um, in the cross. That is the thing that will hold us together um, no matter what's ahead of us. So it's a, it's a call for continued uh, unity together that, call, that Paul is giving us. To shift from, from boundary-oriented relationships to, to center-oriented relationships. As I conclude, let me um, pray this prayer from John 17. And this is 
Um, This is what Jesus prayed for all of us a long time ago. And I'm just going to read this scripture. I'd like for you to imagine that um, Jesus is praying this for us. I pray for those who will believe in me. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Amen.